Think for a second about the most meaningful mentors you've had in your life. It could have been your parents, your mom or your dad, um, maybe a grandparent or another family member, a teacher, a coach, maybe a small group leader or a supervisor at work, somebody who knew you and you knew them. They cared about you. They wanted what's best for you. They shaped who you are. Now, I think it's common with mentors like that that they are in some kind of authority role. Um, but if your experience has been anything like mine with mentors, the relationship is not primarily defined by the mentor's use of their authority. I mean, great mentors aren't known mainly as rule enforcers, are they? I don't think so. Rules, of course, are part of it. Boundaries, guidelines, that's certainly uh, true for parents. I you know, remember growing up and my parents having rules for me, and now I'm the rule maker in my house. Uh, Ashley and I are for our kids. Um, coaches, you know, other people in our lives, they, they lay down guidelines. But um, that's, rules are not the only channel of influence that mentors use to pour into our lives. It seems to me actually there's four channels of influence that meaningful mentors use in our lives. Uh, the first is rules. We just talked about that. That's just one channel, though. Um, a second one, I think, is wisdom. It's not rules exactly. It's not laying down a policy. It's wise advice. It's often given in conversation. Um, I can think back to many times in my life when my dad gave me the advice, life happens one day at a time. And he, he keeps giving me that advice. <laughs> when, when he can sense I'm getting ahead of myself or stressed out, life happens one day at a time. That's wisdom. Um, that's advice. And I've had many life-changing discussions like that with mentors through the years who share their wisdom. Maybe they teach me how to do something or coach me through something. So rules are part of it. Just sharing of wisdom is another channel. There's a third channel, I think, and it's stories. Stories that they tell about their life. Some of those stories are for us to emulate. They're good stories. And then some of them are cautionary tales. They're, they're warnings. Um, here's an example in my family of a cautionary tale. When my grandfather was six, that's my son's age. When he was six, uh, there was a day he didn't want to go to school. And he told his mom, I don't want to go to school. And she said, hit the road, you know, because he would walk down the street to go to school. He didn't want to. So she marches him down to the school she walks back home. Sure enough, he shows up a few minutes later. He followed her back home. And she says, no, this is going to happen. You're going to school. And at that moment, he decided to go nuclear. And he looked at her and slowly pulled off his glasses and twisted and smashed them in her face, thinking, well, I can't go to school if I can't see. He thought wrong because it was the Great Depression and those were expensive, and my great-grandmother was the real deal, apparently, because she marched him right back to school. So that's like a cautionary tale in my family for, you know, a little boy who might be contemplating defiance. Um, I'm waiting to roll that one out with my son, Luke. I'm just waiting for the perfect moment. Um, so, so mentors, meaningful mentors in our life, you know, they communicate in these channels. Some of it's rules, some of it's just wisdom, some of it comes through stories, uh, but there's a fourth channel, and it's not something that they necessarily say directly or demonstrate for us. Um, it's their example. It's, it's what we hear about them, what we observe in them. This is like the coach I had in middle school. 
who would go out of his way to befriend the kids at lunch who didn't play sports and were not especially cool, and he would sit with them to model for his athletes that this is how you treat people and to counter any kind of bullying tendencies they might have. This is watching my mom my whole life jump in and help anybody who came across her path who she could help in any way. This is my youth pastor. I was sitting in the passenger seat. We were driving somewhere, and he pulls up to a red light, and there's a a homeless man uh, asking for money, and my youth pastor didn't have any money, so he literally took the shirt off of his back and handed it to him because he wanted to give him something. And that was an example for me. And, of course, I see it in my house now in the day-in, day-out Christ-like example that Ashley strives to set for our kids. Example. So there's rules, there's wisdom, there's these stories, and there's example. It's kind of four channels of how meaningful mentors pour into our lives. And I think what's interesting is when you take the four together, it, when somebody interacts with you in this way, they're, they're making sure that you just don't know about them, but really that you know them. For, for someone to pour into you in these four ways, they know you, and you know them. Um, Someone just laying down rules is not a mentor. Uh, Someone observed at a distance and admired is not a mentor. They might inspire you or give you good ideas, but they don't know you and you don't know them. There's no relationship there. So one of the big questions that came in uh, in this series, because we we sent out a survey to ask people what they're wrestling with, one of the big questions, uh, a few of them kind of were around this subject of kind of um, what should we expect when we read the Bible? How do we know what God is saying? There was a question that specifically said, how do we know if something in the Bible is like a rule that I'm supposed to always follow? Or it was just kind of describing something that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. How do we know that? Um, how do we know if we're supposed to apply it to our life? And I think these are very important questions to understand what God communicated to us in his word and how he did and why he did. So that's the question that we're going to get at today is this. How and why has God communicated to us through his word? How and why? I'm not going to make you wait long for the answer. The answer is is, uh, that when we come to the scriptures— and we look at all the books of the Bible and their wonderful variety, we find that God speaks to us in these same four channels that we've been talking about with meaningful mentors. He, some of Scripture is rules. Some of it is just wisdom and advice, guidelines for a God-honoring life. Uh, some of it is stories, both positive and negative. There are examples of things we would want to live out and and things we definitely would not want to, cautionary tales. And then, of course, much of Scripture is example. We see God in action, and we observe what he's like, especially in the life of Christ, that being the most personal and powerful example that we could ever hope for. And I think the fact that God spoke to us in these several ways shows he doesn't want us just to know about him. He doesn't want to be some distant authority figure or inspirational voice or an impersonal taskmaster. He spoke to us in his word in the ways that he did to make himself known to us. He wants to know us personally. So today's going to be a little bit different. Um, We're not going to kind of pull apart one passage of scripture. We're going to jump around a little bit. Um, And so don't worry about getting your Bibles out. We're going to put everything up here on the screen. And I want to look at 
some examples of these four channels and how God speaks to us in Scripture because I think if we do that, it's going to help us in two areas. I think we're going to grow in our understanding of the Bible and how God communicated to us, but more importantly, I think it's going to help us grow in our relationship with God. Um, So let's start out and talk about rules, rules in the Bible. These are kind of like clear-cut, unambiguous commands, right? Don't do this, do this. The interesting thing about this is in the popular perception, I think most people feel that the Bible is mostly tuned to this channel. Like that's kind of the impression it leaves for people. Like, oh, it's just a book of rules, right? In reality, rules are actually a relatively small part of Scripture. Um, The best-known example of that would be the Ten Commandments, uh, which are found in Exodus 20. Um, I'm going to read those real quick, because I have a feeling most of us haven't read the Ten Commandments anytime recently. So let's read it real quick. God said this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. What a relevant command for today. Look, if you're not honoring your mother today or your wife who is a mom, you are breaking this commandment, okay? So when church is over, you know, commence with the honoring. Um, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, So you read that, and that is a list of rules. In fact, if you look at it in the original language, I'll highlight here, all of these words are imperative verbs, like do this, don't do this. There's something really important we can't miss, and it's up in verse 2. And so I'm going to highlight just so you can notice it there. Um, It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He said that before any of the commandments. And you know what that tells us is that before any rules are laid down for God's people, there was a relationship there. God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt because he loved them. And that's it. Not because they made themselves acceptable to him or or had had earned uh, a standing with him through their morality. He simply rescued them. And this is a a hint right here uh, that we see all through Scripture that God initiates the relationship with us. He saves us first. The rescue always comes before the rules. And that's so important to remember because we flip that around in our mind. But here you have the most famous set of rules in the Bible. And right there at the beginning, I'm the one who saved you. Therefore, live in this way. The the rescue of the people of Israel from Egypt is the central saving act in the Old Testament. And so the rules came after that. Let's look at a New Testament example. This is Jesus in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, those seem like pretty clear rules, right? Love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, and those two verbs are imperative verbs. Jesus is not making a suggestion. You must do this if you follow Christ. Um, 
Who are we supposed to love and pray for? Boy, this is a lesson in our divisive times. Your enemies, in the original Greek language there, it's those who hate you. Love those who hate you. And then those who persecute you, in the original language, it has the connotation of those chasing you, maybe harassing you is a good word in English. So Jesus is commanding, it's not a suggestion, that we are to love those who hate us and pray for those who are harassing us. What a call. And if we do that, he says, we're children of God. That means we're exhibiting the family trait of loving our enemies. Now, these are clear commands. They are a command, but it's a bit overwhelming to think about living this out, right? I mean, how, how can this actually be done with any consistency in our lives? Praise God, we have his grace. And our standing with him is not dependent on us handling this on our own or just in our own strength trying to act nice to people who are mean to us. That's not what it's about. In fact, the only way this is possible to live this out is by the Holy Spirit working through us. And we have him. So these are rules, but there's a relationship there. A relationship in the background, and that gives us the confidence and the ability to grow into them. Now, I do want to say a word of caution about rules. Um, We are naturally inclined to see our relationship with God as primarily being about rules instead of a relationship. And that means when we come to Scripture, we tend to tune into the rules channel very easily, um, even if we're not reading something that's a rule. It can strike us that way. Uh, We can read something that sounds like a policy but it really isn't because of the context and some other things going on. Let me give you one example. So uh, when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, he, he, you know, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus introduced that prayer and said, this is how you should pray. Now we hear, this is how you should pray, and we think, rule, I'm supposed to pray these words. That's the prayer, right? Jesus said, that's the prayer, I'm going to pray the prayer. And there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer word for word as Jesus Uh, said we should. That's a good thing to do. But Jesus actually was not laying down a rule. He didn't say, this is what to pray. He said, this is how you should pray. This is the manner in which you should pray. It's an example. And so if we're thinking in those channels, it's not a rule. It's, It's the wisdom channel. Jesus is saying, when you pray, this is what your heart should be thinking. This is what you should be prioritizing. This is how I think you should think about prayer. So it's more of wisdom, but we just hear rule when we hear things like that. Um, And so I want to make this key point when it comes to rules in Scripture. It's really important for us to remember, so I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Our hearts and minds are predisposed to find rules and formulas, but God offers us relationship and variety. Our hearts and minds are predisposed to find rules and formulas, but God offers us relationship and variety, a real relationship. And then there are places in Scripture that strike us as rules, but we don't know what to do with them. Like you get into Leviticus. Anybody read through Leviticus recently? Is that, yes, I'm surprised somebody in the room. Great job. Um, that is a lot of rules in Leviticus You're t- because it's talking about the old covenant, the time period where people worship God at the temple and they would deal with their sins through sacrifices. And there are all these regulations. And, and so they don't apply to our lives anymore because of what Jesus did and the new covenant. Um, there's plenty of 
laws in the Old Testament about God's moral character that are still true, but the stuff specific to the temple and sacrifices, that's, that's over. So they don't really apply to our lives, but we read them and go, what do we do with this? So that's good to read those to get a sense of how God has worked through history. It tells you something about his character. Um, and there are other places in Scripture. I don't have time to go into them. I wish I did. In fact, I wrote like two pages on one of these, and I just deleted them on Thursday, which was hard. But um, I don't have time to go into them. But there are several places that we can read, and they feel like these very harsh, clear-cut rules related to the church and people and hierarchies. And they're hard to reconcile with the rest of Scripture. And we read them, they just seem so black and white. What do we do with them? And this is true, especially in the New Testament letters, because remember the letters that Paul wrote and the other New Testament authors wrote? They're written to certain churches in the first century at specific places and times. And some of the stuff in those letters are for all Christians of all time, and sometimes they're very specific to that situation. In one of Paul's letters, he asked somebody to bring him his jacket. So it's like, we can't do that. (laughs) So that was clearly about that situation. So, for example, there's a place, a couple couple verses in the new testament that basically say women shouldn't speak in church at all and they should just be totally quiet and we read that and we're like whoa like that's a really black and white universal rule what's going on there and it's surprising to read that because paul wrote that but then in the rest of his ministry in the book of acts and in other letters There are women leading and teaching and serving publicly in all kinds of capacities. And Paul didn't begrudgingly let them do that. He bragged about them. I couldn't do this without their help. He called them co-workers, which is not a hierarchical term. And so when you bear the broader context in mind, in that case, it can't be that Paul's making some universal rule with this one verse because the rest of his ministry shows that he was very much allowing women to teach and to lead. So it's more probable in that case there were maybe some specific women in this one church that were causing some problems, and and he was trying to deal with that rather than a universal prescription for all of time, all of Christians. And that's kind of a, a, a conclusion a lot of scholars have landed on. But I'll just give you that one example just to kind of make you think that you got to be careful about the broader context when you come to some of these things that seem like clear-cut rules. Um, Because here's the thing. In in my experience, when we take things in Scripture out of context or just act like it's there in a vacuum and nothing else in Scripture comes to bear on it, if we just take something out of context, I have found it usually leads to us being confused and treating other people worse. I can't think of very many examples of people taking Scripture out of context and it leading them to being more joyful and treating people better. And so we have to be really careful because when we read Scripture out of context, it begins to take our shape and not God's shape. Um, So I've spent more time on this rules channel than I am on the other three because I just think this is the one where there's so much confusion and it causes a lot of stress when we read these things. So just a few things to keep in mind. When, you're, when you encounter some rules in Scripture, to, just to remember, number one, most of the Bible isn't made up of rules. It's about a relationship with God. Secondly, a relationship with God precedes the rules. We saw that in the Ten Commandments, and it's all over Scripture. So again, it's the relationship. It's the relationship. That is, that is behind and underneath all of this. And then thirdly, this is about the examples I just gave. When you encounter a rule that seems out of sync with the rest of Scripture or it's hard to understand and apply 
carefully consider the context before arriving at a conclusion about it. Pray about it. Seek some wisdom. If you want to email me, if you have a question about stuff like that, I'll get back to you in four to seven weeks. You know, it'll be, um, I'll, I'll help you out. It's good. So rules. The second channel is wisdom. This is kind of the other channel in scripture that God uses to speak to us. Um, as I said, we're going to go quickly through these other three. Um, this is guidance about a God-honoring life. And Proverbs is kind of the most famous example of this. I love this proverb, Proverbs seventeen twenty-eight. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. It's not a command. It's not God saying, you must be quiet. He's saying you'd be wise to hold your tongue. This is, this is wise. This is God-honoring. I think another really powerful example of this is the story of um, the woman who was caught in adultery and the religious leaders bring uh, her to Jesus and they're like, what do you want to do about this? You know, the law says to stone her. What do you say? And Jesus doesn't say, I command you to release her. And he doesn't say, here's a rule. All women caught like this shall be released for all of time. He's, he's not speaking in policy. He's speaking to the heart. What does he say? He says, okay, any of y'all who haven't sinned, why don't you throw the first stone? It's not a black and white commandment. Jesus is helping his listeners gain wisdom and a sense of his heart. And if, if you're listening in that scenario, what he's teaching us is someone who honors the Lord who is wise will not so readily judge others, especially if they haven't taken the time to examine their own heart and their own sin. So there's lots of examples like this in the Bible. It's not clear-cut policies and rules. It's God letting us into his mind and, and letting us see his heart for our lives. So that's the second channel. The third channel I think we see in Scripture is stories. Um, they're all over the place. Accounts of uh, what God did in and through his people, through history. Some of them are inspirational stories. Some, not so much. Um, one inspirational story, for example, is in the book of Daniel when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar is commanding everybody to worship him. And he made this big idol and he's commanding everybody to bow down to it. And if you don't, you get thrown in the fiery furnace. And these Israelites are not going to do that. Daniel and his friends and his three young friends refuse to do this. And they respond to the king with such courage. They say this, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, then God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. So this is not God giving us a rule or a policy or just teaching us, giving us advice. We're observing something that happened. And the response of these three young men, they trusted God. They trusted that he could save them and that even if he didn't rescue them from the furnace, that he was still good and he was still God. And that is an amazing message that should inspire us in our lives of faith to trust God in the ups and downs and in the uncertainty. It's a positive story. It's prescriptive, meaning we should all want this to be true of us too. This is God letting us see something that is an example for us. An example on the other side of a negative story might be King Solomon. He disobeyed God's rules and we see the results in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, 
Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives by royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So this is a cautionary tale. This is, a, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing a situation that we wouldn't want to emulate. Solomon should not have done this. You know, it's interesting. I've heard um, some people in the public sphere who are kind of secular intellectual types make these claims like, you know, the Bible endorses polygamy. Have you read the Bible? Polygamy is all over the place in the Bible, which I hear that and I'm like, that is just the most fundamental misunderstanding that if the Bible describes it, then it endorses it. And that's just simply not true. I mean, how many things do we describe in our lives that we don't endorse? And, that, and that's true of the Bible, too. God describes things that aren't good, that we wouldn't aspire to. In fact, the whole Old Testament could be described as this downward spiral of God's people turning against him, sinning, abandoning him, creating the need for a Savior. And if that's the narrative, we're going to find all kinds of stuff in there that we don't want to emulate that aren't good. The Bible is a story of rescue and redemption. And if that's true, there's going to be a lot of mess. And we read about the mess. So just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's condoned. It's all there to help us get to know God better and how he's worked in history. We can learn lessons from positive stories and cautionary tales. Last channel is example. So this is passages of scripture where God isn't speaking to us or, or teaching us directly or we're reading a story about somebody else. This is us just getting to observe God in action. This is what God's doing. We see what he's like. Um, many of the stories of Jesus's ministry would be this kind of thing. For example, Mark 10, 46 to 52. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So this is not Jesus making a rule or giving advice. This is us seeing God in action. And we're seeing his example of kindness and noticing those who are in need. So just to kind of wrap up, to kind of conclude some of what we've discovered today, when we read the Bible, I think it's important to remember that God speaks in these different ways to us. Sometimes it's rules. Sometimes it's wisdom about what a God-honoring life looks like. Sometimes it's stories for our encouragement or our caution. And sometimes we're just seeing God in action 
to get a sense of what he's like, a deeper sense of his character. And I just think it's so important to remember that the primary purpose of Scripture is this. The primary purpose, it, God's primary purpose is to make himself known. That's what this is all for, is to make himself known. And he gave us his word so that we would, not so that we would just know about him or just have sort of intellectual knowledge of, of him, but so that we would actually know him. That's the purpose of it. And God spoke about this. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, he spoke about his plans and his desires for our lives. This is one of my favorite passages in, in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. God gives us his purpose. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He was pointing forward to the new covenant, the time in which Knowing God would no longer be some vague notion or something only priests could do because they get to go in the temple and ordinary people don't. Knowing God one day would not just be a theory or a hope. People would actually know God personally because of the new covenant that would come through Jesus. God in the flesh who walked as one of us Jesus told us the truth about himself, about God, about our need for him. He laid down some rules. Yep. He also sat around tables and talked with people. He had conversations. He walked on beaches, sat around campfires, shared wisdom, shared stories both for our encouragement and our warning. And with every word and step and action of his life, he let us see him. He made himself knowable. God knows us and he wants us to know him. He invites us to know him. And he made himself ultimately knowable by becoming one of us. The author of Hebrews put it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word to know Christ is to know God Jesus said if you've seen me you've seen the father and Jesus is God's living word New Testament tells us. So in Scripture, in God's Word, and most clearly in the life of Christ, we meet God. We are invited not to know about God, but to know Him personally, to know life in Him, to know hope in Him, and to live out the life that He paid such a high price for us to live. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time, a time to think about 
your word and how you have communicated to us about yourself. You didn't stay at a distance. You didn't stay a mystery. You made yourself known. You made yourself known in your word and you communicated to us in these different ways. You gave us rules for our protection. You gave us wisdom and guidance and allow us to see stories about your people and and, and see you in action, Lord, communicating to us that you don't want us to just know about you like you're some idea. You want us to know you. And as you said through Jeremiah, that was your purpose all along. And we could have never dreamed up what your plan was, that you would actually become one of us and become supremely knowable. That there are people who talk to you, who touched you, who ate meals with you, who walked with you. Lord, I just pray that 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 fact would not be lost on us. That we would never get used to that idea that you came in the flesh as one of us to make yourself known and to bridge the gap between us and allow a relationship with you. That that would never be old news. That would never be just familiar or just good advice or just some sort of warm, fuzzy, sentimental thing. But that that would be life-changing. That that would settle down into the depths of our heart and be the foundation of everything in our lives. And that we would know you as you are.